Chaim Lozato is going to do in the next um, in the next couple of pages is he's going to essentially make a wrap up of the the way that the two principal conducts function together. We spoke about the fact that there are two conducts. One conduct of God is the conduct of Hanhogas Hamishpat, which essentially is the conduct by which God allows us the choices to do whatever we we choose to do, but then God responds in measure to the quality of our actions, which brings to bear upon us the entire conduct of scharva onesh, reward or retribution. And then there's a second conduct of God, which is called hanhagas hayichud, the conduct that leads to God's oneness, in which God is committed to the realization of his existence and the importance of that realization that the world should come to that point of realization and in spite of what man chooses not to see about God God makes sure that slowly but surely the world moves closer and closer to that realization and we spoke the last time that we were together two weeks ago, three weeks ago we spoke about the concept that the Hanhagas Hayichu, the concept of God's intervention to make that goal of realization happen, is one that is not occur that is not one that occurs merely overnight that God changes his mind one day and says, Okay, I've had enough of, of man trying to get to realize me through his own choices, we're gonna change it and now I'm gonna intervene and make myself obvious. We pointed out that God, God's Hanhagas Hayichud, and in fact even the Hanhagas Hamish, but both work in the direction of slowly making it happen. Slowly making it happen. And um, we gave an example. We gave an example of this concept. We spoke about the fact that any generation in which the temple is not rebuilt, it's as if it was destroyed in that generation. Uh, another thing that our sages say is that those that mourn the destruction of the temple, the loss of the spirituality of the temple, will be meritorious to see it be, be rebuilt. So we ask the question that there were many, many generations that have already passed of very righteous people that mourned the destruction of the temple and did not see it re- being rebuilt. And and uh, certainly we can't point a blaming finger at them and say that because in your generation it wasn't built, it's like you destroyed it. What is that supposed to mean? So last time we explained that the concept that any generation, that the temple's not built in that generation, it's like it's destroyed in that generation. What it means is the following, that every generation makes a contribution to the building of the temple. In other words, the temple is not built overnight. All of a sudden, in one year, God decides, okay, now, the, now it's time for a temple. A temple is made by the collective contributions of the Jewish people over hundreds and thousands of years of history. Every thought, every action, every, every contemplation of doing something good is not lost. It's not forgotten, but it becomes an energy, it becomes a reality that helps build that which will eventually become the Beis HaMikdash. Uh, when we talk, for instance, about the fact that the third temple, God will build the third temple, what it means that God will build the third temple as opposed to man, it means because it's only God that can be the treasurer or the executor 
of being able to collect every thought, every action, every speech, everything that uh, a Jew did that was positive, the only possible one that can bring all of those things together and create the edifice of all of those contributions is only Hashem. And it's very interesting because that third temple is referred to as a Chomas Eish. It's referred to as as that it it will be consist it will consist of walls of fire, and walls of fire can never be destructed. Walls of any other material can be destructed, but walls of fire cannot be destructed. And the Vilna Gaon says, "What are walls of fire?" So the Vilna Gaon says that walls of fire are all of the all of the uh, loyalty, in spite of all of our adversaries all of our belief and trust in spite of the anguish and the tragedies of history, those create the chaymas eish. Those are the things that create the walls of fire that will make a temple which will be a binyan olam, that will be an eternal temple that will never be able to be destroyed. But the idea being that it's the contribution of every generation. Every generation contributes a layer of bricks, a part of a wall, a segment of its of the of the base hamikdash by what it's done. So what the Talmud is saying is the following thing: a generation that doesn't make its contribution is it's as if it's destroying the temple because it needs every generation's contribution to the building. For instance, my responsibility is the first floor. The next generation's responsibility is the second floor. Now, if the first generation goofs off and doesn't do its responsibility, how do you build a second floor without a first floor? So in a certain sense, because everybody has a unique contribution to make to the building of the Beis HaMikdash, not making your contribution is, 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 a, is a destruction of the part that you had to build in the Beis HaMikdash. This is what... Uh, this is what the commentaries say. How about the Chazal? How about this that the sages say that the person that mourns over the destruction of the temple will see it rebuilt? He's not seeing it rebuilt. Thousands of generations didn't see it rebuilt. So they say also a very interesting thing that the person that really, really makes the contribution to the building of the temple, while he doesn't see the physical temple, but he does come to realize what he's built through the contribution of his spirituality. The whole concept that it's possible for a tzaddik, for a righteous person, or the person that's making spiritual contribution, to be able to live within the darkness of exile and still be a, and be above it. I mean, the idea, the idea that a person can create spirituality and can create uh, a connection to God that takes the person out of the constraints of gullus. That a person can live in the kind of, within within Gaulus and really not be in it at all. Let me give you an example of this. The Talmud says, for instance, that um, that when the time of the building of the Beis Hamikdash will come, God will will move all of the the synagogues and all of the houses of learning from all over the world, and will bring them to Jerusalem. And we spoke about this once. So what does it mean? I mean, that would be an architectural nightmare to get everybody's shul and shtibble and to, to put it together to become a temple. But what it means is that all of the avodas Hashem, all of the service and bonding to God that's created in all of those places, they all build the temple. Now, where is that learning going on? It's going on in shuls all over the world all through the years. Where is the davening going on? All through the different shuls, all over the world, all through the years. 
So there's this contribution that's being made. So the place that I davened, the place that I learned becomes an atmosphere that that is, even though it's somewhere in a distant land from Jerusalem, but it's a piece of the temple of Jerusalem that I'm living in and that I'm creating. So I'm in Gullus, but in a certain sense I'm sitting in a part of that which will become the temple in Jerusalem. So I'm in Gullus, but at the same time I'm not in Gullus. I'm in the exile, but in a certain sense spiritually I'm ele- I've elevated myself above the limitations of the exile. Now, you might think that everything that I'm saying over here in, t- in, in this reference is either homiletic or that it's simply a review of something that we learned in the past. It's true, it's something that we learned in the past, but I'm sharing it again for the simple reason that I came to realize just about a week ago that this concept we say three times a day. If you look at the Amida prayer, we ask for the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple, and we end off the blessing. Now, we're asking for the rebuilding of the temple, so we're talking about something that we hope will happen in the future. And how do we end off the blessing, praying for the rebuilding of, the, of Jerusalem and the temple within it? We end off the blessing, Baruch Hashem, Bless art thou God, Baina Yerushalayim. Now, anybody that knows Diktuk, anybody that knows Hebrew grammar knows that Bone is present tense. It's not future tense. It's not Yivne Yerushalayim. It's Bone Yerushalayim. That God is constantly building Jerusalem. We say that three times a day. Until a week ago, I didn't even realize it. Bone Yerushalayim. God is building Jerusalem. Where is He building Jerusalem? Where is He building the temple? The answer is that God is collecting every twist and turn of our Avodah Hashem, our attempts to reach Him, our attempts to bond to Him, and that God takes and He's building the temple. By the time the temple will be built, it will have already been totally erected by the Avodah Hashem of thousands of years of people that sought, sought out a relationship with God. So that's what we were talking about, the concept that we march on in a consistent march with a momentum towards that time. And that's what we learned. And now, Ramosh Chaim Litzato on page 72, the new paragraph on the page, is going to basically wrap up both things together and, and finish this entire unit with a couple of things, some loose ends that he's going to, to clear up as well. And with this, he's going to end the entire topic and the new topic that we will start even either next week or the week afterwards will be the topic of what is resurrection from a Jewish perspective. That's his next topic. How he gets from where we are learning today till there is a discussion unto itself, but we'll see how he gets to that. V'nimtza. So now let's start the new paragraph. V'nimtza. Shebe'emes. <coughs> that the truth, it comes out in reality, that that God is really holding on and working with two attributes constantly. And God is not only enacting these two conducts, the one of reward and punishment based upon justice and the one based on what? God's intervention for ultimate goals of His realization. But these two conducts were also programmed into the very foundations of the world. That the world responds and is programmed to react to these two conducts. 
What are the two conducts? So he's giving us a review. Echad, the first conduct, Midas Hascharva Onesh, the conduct of reward and punishment. He had Hagas It is the conduct by which God gives us the opportunity, the freedom to do right or wrong, and by virtue of that, access either merit or or responsibility for our wrongdoings. And this conduct is referred to as the conduct which operates by the guidelines of justice with God reacting to the things that we do. God sits and judges the world in its entirety by virtue of the quality of the actions of the world. The good ones and the bad ones, which means he responds in measure to the good actions and to the negative actions. Now, that's one conduct. And now he says, But within this conduct where God is what? Oh, responding to what we're doing. There is Midas Tuvai. There is a second conduct which is uh, what? Which, which manifests God's ultimate goodness. That is in line with God's ultimate perfection, and according to the ability of his rule, that with his power he wants to correct everything in creation, and that creation should realize ultimate truths. Now let me explain what he's saying over here. I, I jumbled about three concepts together here, because he did it. But let's go back and do it one, by, uh, one at a time. He's saying that within the context of the conduct of, of justice, with reward and punishment and response, God has the second conduct. What is the second conduct? I describe the second co- conduct as the conduct by which God even intervenes outside of our deserving it, making sure that we slowly move closer to the realization of God. Right? Now, there are a number of ways in which he describes this conduct here, which, which he's going to get into greater detail. But a number of the ways that he describes it is, first of all, it's Midas Tuvo. It's the attribute of his goodness. It's also And it is in line with God's order of perfection. And it is also, number three, And it's also, it also speaks well of God's ability to rule. Right? So there are three ways in which Rav Moshe Chaim Litzato is now e- explaining the second conduct. The conduct by which God says that I am going to get the world closer and closer to realizing me and my values in spite of what man does. Okay? In spite of what man does, that might be going in the opposite direction. And he identifies three things. It's Midas Tuvo. It's the attribute of God's goodness. It's lefi chay and it's in order with God's perfection, and it's lefi inyan mem shalto, and it's also in order with God's ability to rule. Now let me explain each one of them. Midas tuvo means the attribute of God's goodness. In other words, that God's ultimate goal is to do good with man. Now the truth of the matter is that. To do good with man is not the earmarkings of the second conduct to the exclusion of the first conduct. The first conduct by which God gives us choices and then responds to our choices 
is also Midas Tuvo. It's also God's goodness. So why is Lazaro saying that the second conduct can be described as Midas Tuvo? It's, it's in line with God's goodness. Well, what he means to say by this is that in the first conduct where God gives us choices, God gives us choices and he only reacts to the quality of our actions, his Midas Tuvo is limited. Because if we don't do that which will, will make us deserving of his goodness, we won't get it. So in a certain sense, the first conduct by which everything is up to our choices and God is only responding to our choices, in a certain sense, God is limiting himself. Because God is saying that the way I'm setting it up is you have to deserve it. So even though I am capable of giving it to you even if you don't deserve it, but I don't want to give it to you unless you deserve it. So God is actually taking for himself a pair of handcuffs and saying... I'm going to handcuff myself and I'm giving the keys to you. You take the hand, you ta- you open up the handcuffs. So in a certain sense while the entire idea of our choosing and our developing through our choice is good for us, but does it prevent in a certain sense God from doing what he would like to do? Yes it does. Because God is saying that even though I want to give to you, I'm going to control myself and I will discipline myself and I won't give to you unless you push the right buttons, unless you do the right things. So in a certain sense, the first conduct, though it is intentioned to be for our good, but does it in the reality always display the good of God? Not really. Because very often if we make the bad choice, God says you made the wrong choice, I can't give to you. So the Midas Tuva that God in reality does have cannot be enacted because we haven't enabled God to enact it. Now, God can, at any moment in time can change it and say, I'll, I want to give to you even though, even though you don't deserve it. God has the ability to change. But the point being that God dis- puts himself into a framework and says, I want to give to you on the basis of your deserving. Which means that man can actually tie God's hands in not giving him. I'll do that which won't make me deserve, and then God won't give. That's why Lazaro says, but the second conduct, the conduct by which God intervenes and says, the world must move forward in the realization of who I am, that's totally midas tuvo. God is saying, if you deserve it or if you don't deserve it, I'm going to make sure that it happens because that is the ultimate good for you. The realization. The process would make it even better if it would come through your own choice. But what happens in the event that your process doesn't create it? I'm going to make it happen anyway. Why? Midas tuvo. Because the nature of God's goodness is that by hook or by crook, God says, you have to have that blessing. You have to have the blessing of the realization of who I am and a life that matches that realization. So that's why, even though the first conduct is also Midas tuvo, it's Midas Tuvo in process, but it's not Midas Tuvo in terms of what the person necessarily gains, because he might make the wrong choice. While the second conduct is a Midas Tuvo in, in the sense that God says the product is guaranteed. The result, the goal is guaranteed. Why is it guaranteed? Why does God have a commitment to guarantee a goal? The reason why God has a commitment to guarantee a goal is Midas Tuvo. God doesn't stand back with his hands folded like this and say, well, if you deserve it, it's good, and if not, not. You know, like, I I don't care about it. God cares. 
God says, I want you to do it through your own process, but I care a lot if you don't do it through your process. How much do I care? That if you don't do it through your own choice, I'll intervene to make it happen. That's me, that's Tuvo. That's a, that's a, a me, that's Tuvo that says, I'll do it your way, which will be ben- to beneficial to you, but if you don't use the way that's open to you in your benefit, I'll make it happen in a different way. Now, <clears throat> so that's me, that's Tuvo. Let's go on to the next thing. Chok Shlemusai. It is in order of what? Of God's perfection. Why is it in order of God's perfection? So this follows from exactly what we said before. The person that stands back with his hands folded and says, well, if you deserve it, you can have it. And if you don't deserve it, I'm not giving it to you. Right? The nature of that person is that his giving is something that is prompted by what another person does. It doesn't flow from within. The person that has that kind of attitude of folding his hands and saying, well, if you deserve it, I'll give it to you, and if not, I couldn't care less, and I'm not going to give it to you. That's a person whose giving is based on the prompting of another person's activities. Right? But a person who is really shalem, a person who is really perfect and whole, wants to give. The person is not looking for a way out of giving. The person is spilling over with giving. The nature of perfection, the nature of good is that it spills itself over. It wants to give. The example that we always give to this is the example of Eliezer's test. If Rivka was the proper marriage partner for Yitzchak, what was the test that he made for it? Right? No computer test. What was the test that he made if it was the right match? He said, I'm going to go down and I'm going to ask Rivka for water for myself. And if Rivka will not only give me water, but will actually go beyond my request and offer the animals water, then I know that it's a shidduch for Yitzchak. Mazel tov. Right? Because Rivka is going to feed the camels of Eliezer, then I know that it's a shidduch. I mean, what's, what's the relationship? Maybe, maybe, maybe uh, Rivka was an animal lover. Maybe Rivka had a crush on camels. I don't know. I mean, what's the, what's the indication? But the point being that what Eliezer is saying is that the nature of a person that's taif, the nature of a person that's good, doesn't only respond in giving, but the person wants to give even when it's not in terms of a response to a request. The nature of giving is that you give, not because somebody else is asking, but you give because the nature of taif is to give. So that's what Eliezer was saying. I'm going to make a request. So if she only answers my request, so I don't know that she's taif. All she's doing is responding to what I asked. So she's a human being. She's a mature human being. She's a decent human being. But how do I know that she's shalem? How do I know that she's at peace with herself? How do I know that she has taif in herself? That she has goodness in herself? When she extends herself, not in response to, but because inside she wants to give. Where she, where she gives something without being asked. Okay? And this is exactly the same thing. Kaviyachal, if you can make the comparison to God, it's the same thing. What's he saying? The perfection of God, the perfection of God requires, it, it's almost like a compelling force that God wants to give. And that is what is going on in the conduct of God's intervention. When God's intervention moves the plan along, 
What is it coming from? God is displaying Chayk Shleimusai. He's showing his taif. He's showing his true colors of taif. The true color, color, uh, colors of taif is not, well, if you deserve it. The true colors of taif is I want to give because I want to give. That's the nature of taif. Okay? So that's why he's describing it as Musa. Now, what does it mean when God is doing the first conduct of reward and punishment? God is not acting out his essence? In a certain sense, he's not. He's being mitzamtzeim. He's saying, I'm going to hold back and I'm not going to give until man does that which is required. So God is not acting out his, his... He's not acting unilaterally by virtue of what his essence is. He's waiting for man. That's not Chayk Shleimusay. Chayk Shleimusay is where it flows unilaterally because of who God is himself. That's Chok Shleimusay. The other thing is also for the benefit of man, but it's not, chayk, it's not in order with his perfection. What is in order with his perfection? That which flows just because it's good. That's Chok Shleimusay. That's the second definition that Lazaro is saying. And what's the third definition? Lefi Inyan Memshalto. And this is all contingent upon the power that God has to rule. What does this mean? What this means is, well, let's say God would have Midas Tuvo. He would have this goodness of wanting to give, even without deserving. He would have Chok Musa, which means that it flows just by the nature of God's goodness. Right? But, you, but after having these two things, you let's say God just can't change the political scene. God just can't make the thing move any further because the world is in the power of the human being and the world and people are doing it going the other way. So Rav Chaim Lasata says, no, but God has a rulership over the world that no matter what he's given to the world in terms of free will and everything else, God always retains the control and the power to make happen what he wants to happen. So the, 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 when, when, when God, let's make the comparison, when we're talking about God's conduct of reward and punishment, so is that God's power or is that God's ability to respond? That's God's ability to respond. Right? God set up a framework with reward and punishment and every time that God, God enacts a reward or a punishment, it's a response to man. Right? When do we talk about the concept of God's power and not being constrained and not being held in check by anything that we do? In the conduct of God's oneness, where God says, in spite of what man is going to do, I'm going to get my job done, that means that God has overriding power. That no matter what man does, God can still override it in terms of the goal that he wants. Do whatever you want, but I'll still get done what I have to get done. That's Inyan Memshalta. That means that God, in spite of the fact that he gives us our free will, always retains overriding control and power. So these are the three features that come out, that are crystallized in Hanhagas Yichudo. Midas Tuvo, the fact that God has a commitment to good, that it's in the order with his perfection and it's and that it, it reveals to us the overriding control that God has no matter how much power and how much, how much was given over into the hands of man. 
Okay, now, Vihine, let's go a little bit further. So these are the three features. Now, Vihine, Lefi Midas Haschava Onesh. And now he's going to, ex- everything that I just explained, okay, he's going to, he's going to review. Vihine, Lefi Midas Haschava Onesh, if we're talking about the first conduct of justice with reward and punishment. God obliges and ties himself and his actions to our actions. What does that mean? God says, I will do nothing except respond to you. Which means that God waits for what we do. And God then responds in measure to what we do. And if man's actions are good, so then God's response is a positive one. And if the actions of man are bad, God is forced, if you can say the word forced in relationship to God, to punish them. But does God want to punish them? Is God waiting to lower the boom on a person that did the wrong thing? No, God's not waiting for it. In fact, God's disappointed. But God says that since the free will system is the one that's most beneficial for man, I have to live with the consequences of that framework, which means that if he does something wrong, I'm going to have to punish him. Because if he does right, then I reward him. And if he does wrong, I don't punish him. So what kind, of a, what kind of a free will system is it? It means whatever you do, you're all right. So there's no kind of a deserving system that's been set up. And now we can understand a very difficult pasuk, a very difficult verse in Psalms. Where King David says to the Jewish people, give power to God. Mazel tov. We have to give power to God? God was here before us. He'll be here after us. And King David turns to the Jewish people and says to the Jewish people, Give power to God. What is that supposed to mean? God needs that we should give Him something? I mean, where on earth did we get it from to give it to Him if He didn't give it to us? So what's this So now, Rav Meshachayim let's start to say, now we can understand it. Because in the free will system, God says that my, what's going to happen in the world is not dependent upon my ability. My ability can give you anything. But it's not going to be dependent upon my ability. It's going to be dependent upon your action. So God actually limits himself by his own will that he is not going to reveal his ability, but he will re- only reveal a response and measure to our activities. So when King David says to the Jewish people, to know Elzalakim, give power to God, what King David is saying is do the right things so that God can do what he wants to do with you. So you're giving God the power of giving you. In other words, without you, without you doing the right thing, God can't give what he wants to give to you. So in a certain sense, you're giving power to God. To know Elzalakim. That's one thing. Now, there's something very sensitive here, and we've spoken about it a number of times, that when we think about doing something which is right, we often think about it along the lines of one of the two things. I'll either do it because it's right to do inherently, I'll do it because, because God asked me to do it, okay? But whoever thinks that I should do the right thing because God wants to give me something, and, I, and because God has such a desire to give me, okay, I am actually giving power to God in his, in his desire to give me. 
I mean, whoever thinks like that. Or vice versa. Whoever thinks in terms of a sin, that when a person does something that's wrong, that I'm disappointing God's desire to give to me. I mean, whoever thinks like that. The furthest that we ever think religiously or spiritually is that I did something wrong and it's detrimental, or I did something wrong and God's angry at me. But whoever thought about talking about uh, of doing something wrong in the terms of I disappointed God's desire to give. Whoever thought of it in that way? That God's standing there and the essence of God is I want to give, 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 give. And man, you're frustrating me. You're not allowing me to give what I want to give to you. Whoever thought that when we do uh, an Avera, we're frustrating God's desire to give. We usually see God with you know smoke coming out of his nostrils. You scoundrel, you no good, Nick. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying either it's either God is pleading with you, allow me to do what is within my nature to do. And the reverse is that Moses says to the Jewish people when they sin that as strong as a rock as God is, that the ones that I created and brought into this world make me weak. Which is the reverse, the other side of the coin, when we do the things that are negative. I mean, but who thinks along these terms? Reb Chaim in his Sefer Nefesh says very beautifully, Reb Chaim says in his Sefer that when a person, uh, when a person does tshuva, when a person regrets having done something wrong and tries to return, he has to, he has to regret that he did something which was negative. He also has to regret that he frustrated God's desire to give to him. Two things. He has to do tshuva on the ma'aseh, on the negative activity. He also has to do tshuva because he put God in a frustrating position of not being able to give when he wanted to give. And he has to do tshuva for that. Okay, that's what he's saying over here. Now, with this we can understand what our sages tell us. That when the Jewish people do the will of God, they add strength to the heavenly realms above. And when they don't do the will of God, they weaken the power of the of the of the. Of the heavenly realms. Chas v'shalom, God forbid. Okay, this is all the first conduct. Now, let's go into the second conduct. But according to the second conduct, that what? The overriding power and control that God has. Omar, how is that described in our verses? That God will feel out and discern the sin of the, the generation in one day. It will be sought after the sin of, the, of Israel and the transgressions of, Ju- of Yehuda, and it won't be found. What does that mean? That God will create a situation, okay, that God will create a situation that won't reckon with or deal with the negativity of the people. That God will say that the gift of my realization to the world that will benefit man must happen. 
and all of the narishkeit and all of the diversions and distractions that man got himself involved in, I'm going to wipe it all away. I'm not going to work with the world. Do they deserve it or don't they deserve it? But I'm going to give it to them because they need it and I want to give it to them. Beyond Echad. That doesn't need a whole process. Beyond Echad in one day, Umashtiyas Avona Oretz. That's the drama, the dramatic difference between the two. Now, according to the first conduct of reward and punishment, then we're talking about justice and truth. A man gets what? Depending upon the path that he's chosen for himself. And then God works with a, a rule of what? Measure for measure. And God employs many, many different ways in order to repay man measure for measure. And God will measure to the person that which is appropriate for him. Now here, parenthetically, Rav Chaim Litzat is saying something which is phenomenal. Again, he's going back to explain the first conduct. And he's saying in the first conduct, we talk about justice, truth, measure for measure. Okay? So a person can make a mistake and say, well, let's say there's 300, let's say there's 248 positive commands and there's 365 negatives, things that you're not supposed to do. So we can technically make a list. For this positive command, this is the measure for measure that God responds. For this positive command, this is the measure for measure. Well, if it's measure for measure, so it's measure for measure, finished. And for the negatives, they're measure for measures. So Rabbi Moshe Chaim Litzata says, forget it, Charlie, it's not true. Mida connected, Mida is different for every single person. Because every person doing a positive thing that God asks them to do, or staying away from a negative thing, or doing a negative thing, is different for every person because people come from different backgrounds, different environments, different motivation levels, and therefore, and therefore, the mida connected mida is different for different people. That's number one. Number two, let's say, let's say a person, a person uh, wakes up one morning and decides, ah, I'm going to sleep 45 minutes late and I'll skip davening today. All right? So God can decide. God can decide that the Mida Keneged Mida for this particular person is that he'll have a hard time falling asleep the next night. I don't know. Why? Because God decides that for this particular person he goes bananas if he doesn't sleep enough. So you took more sleep than you were supposed to. I'll show you already. Tomorrow night somebody will call ten minutes after you fall asleep. Okay? Mida Keneged Mida. Now there could be another person that couldn't care less. They, you know, you have these workaholics that, you know, they're disappointed when they, when they can't stay up anymore. And if somebody calls ten minutes after they fall asleep and wakes them up, gewaldic. So for that person, me, the connected me, has to be something else. So the me, the connected me, is different for every person. So in other words, just to, to figure out that you're going to figure, you know, you'll figure out what the me, the connected me, is for everything and then you'll make your decision. Is it worth it? Isn't it worth it? He says it's different. God finds the appropriate measure for measure for each person along his path. And that's true in the positive and it's true in the negative as well. 
Be it a response which is for a good thing, l'chesed, or l'shifta, or when God has to clobber him over the head. God clobbers over the head in many different ways. Okay, as I just demonstrated. By the way, I had a Rebbe that always said that people give examples of things that are very close to them. Okay, so I think you'll understand. Okay. He didn't give the example with sleeping, he gave the example with cake. But uh, uh, anyway. But according to the method of God's uh, uh, goodness, the order of his perfection, there is a common denominator. The bottom line is bring everything back to the final good result. To the ultimate correction that will, will, is promised for this world. And uh, in regards to this second conduct, which says, that I am committed to getting the world to where it's supposed to go. Upon this it says in Malachi, Ani Hashem Lo Shanisi. I am a God who essentially never changed. Now let me explain this a little bit. And in the Medrash of Rav Shimon who was the author of the Zohar, it says, God really never changes. Now, what on earth is this supposed to mean? I mean, who thought that God does change? But what Rav Chaim Litzat is doing is he's shedding tremendous light on what this concept is all about. Ani Hashem Nisi means the following thing. In the first conduct, God can appear differently. God can punish or God can, can, can reward. So it appears like God is different. Today he likes me, tomorrow he's angry at me. It appears as if God is, 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 is comprised of different attitudes and different characteristics which don't have really any oneness. Okay? We say that God's in a bad mood today and he's in a good mood tomorrow. That's our perception because today God is doing something which we perceive as good, tomorrow he's doing something which we perceive as unpleasant. So there we talk about our perception of God as being a God that's changing. But in the second conduct, the conduct of Hanhagas Hayichud, what is the second conduct? Come hell or high water, I'm going to get the taiv that I want man to have to come true. That's an Hashem Leishanisi. That doesn't allow for the back and forth. That's going for the bullseye. I want that goal, and that goal is going to happen if they deserve it, if they don't deserve it. There you see a determined God that doesn't move to the right or to the left, responding to what we do. I have one thing in mind. Um, what is it called in English? I'm single-minded. That's what Ani Hashem Shanisi is. Ani Hashem Shanisi is that there's a single-minded aspect about God. The Hanhagas HaYichud is the single-minded aspect. I mean, the truth of the matter is that reward and punishment is also single-minded. Because it's also for our good. So in that sense, it's also single-minded. But to us, it doesn't appear that way. It appears like God is either good today or not good today. To us, it appears. But Hanhagas HaYichud is, is, is a single-minded thing. For Amnam Hanhagas HaSchar V'Einashi HaMagulus V'Niris Tamid L'Ein 
The conduct of reward and punishment is the one that is more obvious to us. But this, that everything that happens is, re- is reaching for the Tikkun HaGamar, Amuk Amuku. That's very, very deep. That's very, very difficult to see. That's very difficult to see. And most of it we cannot even understand or reveal today. How everything, even the bad things, are really a march towards the Tikkun HaGamur is something which is it will not become obvious to us now. But in the end, when we finally reach it, we will be able to look back with hindsight and realize how God, every step of the moment, was moving everything in that direction. It is marching and moving on every single moment and every hour, without a stop. There's a very interesting thing which I saw also uh, over the last week or ten days re- regarding the Shemona Esrei. Uh, about Bona Yerushalayim. I say a share on the Shemot Asri every week a different bracha. So I'll share with you yet one more thing that's a little bit in line with the Bona Yerushalayim, but it's also this concept. Also this concept, a very fascinating concept. The blessing before the Bona Yerushalayim is the blessing of Alat Sadikim. Alat Sadikim. So what do we say in the blessing of Alat Sadikim? It's, it's, uh, I'd like to share with you two things from this which are very beautiful. What do we say? We identify five groups of people. These five groups of people, the righteous, the, the Hasidim, the, the converts to Judaism, the ones that, uh, that are responsible to hand over the Torah from generation to generation. These five groups of people. We say about them, God, show your compassion and your love and come through to them, come through for them, and we should be included with them. In other words, we recognize the fact that we're really not, that we're really not in any one of those five categories. But God, while you're giving them everything that they need, give it to us together with them. Something like the, the concept of, you know, piggyback. Yeah. Show them tremendous compassion and come through for them because they trust you so much in real, in real, in a real act of trust. And let's let us also be with them together. Right? And then the blessing ends off, and the blessing says the following things: and we should never be embarrassed. That's referring to us. Give it to them because they really trust you in truth. But we, but give it also to us that we shouldn't be embarrassed because we trust your name as well. So the, the Vilna Gaon explains something over here which is very interesting. The Vilna Gaon says like this. The Vilna Gaon says, what is this bracha saying? This bracha is recognizing the fact that there are five major groups that what they are is not only something that is important for themselves in terms of their own personal growth, but we recognize these five groups because they make a statement which is a contribution to the entire Klal Yisrael as a whole, and for that matter to the whole world. The tzaddik, the convert, the person that's responsible for the authentic transmission from one generation to the next generation, these are not just people that have grown for themselves. 
but they are people that by virtue of their growth they have made a statement a very loud and significant statement that inspires the whole Klal Yisra and for that matter inspires the entire world so what do we say to God? So we say to God, the Vilna Goyen says, we recognize the unique role that these five groups of people play. Why? Not just because of their own personal excellence, but because their personal excellence furthers and advances the cause for which we stand for, for ourselves and for the whole world. So what am I saying to God? I'm saying to God like this. I'm not a tzaddik like them. And I'm not making the proclamations that they're making but I want to be on their side. I'm rooting for the same things that they're fighting for. In other words, if you have two teams and you root for one team, so you might not be able to play the game the same way they play them, play the game. You might not be the same sportsman that they are, but you're rooting for the team that you want to win. So we're turning to God and we're saying to God the following thing. Am I necessarily the same place they are? Have I enacted in my life the disciplines and the controls and the spiritual elevation that they have? No. But God, I think that I deserve to be included in the blessing together with them because I root for them. I support them. Says Gate Miran in Lebanon, it bothers me if they will be embarrassed, if they will be booshed out. It bothers me. Because I ideologically support everything that they're fighting for. So while I can't be in combat the way they're in combat, and I can't make the eloquent proclamations that they can because I haven't worked it out in my own life yet, but I support what they're doing. I want to see them be successful. So the Vilna Gaon says, step one, the Vilna Gaon says, a Jew that can turn to God and says, you know, I see that there are two camps out there. And I'm not such a big tzaddik to say that I belong by virtue of what I've done to the right camp, but I sure appreciate that camp. I look up to that camp. I praise that camp. And I'll do what I can do in my limited way to support them and to root for them. So the Vilna Gaon says that's a basis that I should be included with them in blessing. And that's what the Alat Sadiqim is saying. Alat Sadiqim, Alat Chasidim, Valzikne Amchabesisur, Valplay Tassafrim, Valgeriat Sadiq. The Aleinu. Yeah, we're not any one of those groups. But Aleinu Yemenurachamecha. Why? Because Valeinavish. Because if they're embarrassed, we'll feel the embarrassment with them. Their goals are our goals. And if they're embarrassed, we're embarrassed. In other words, our hearts are in the right place. What is the Vilna Gain talking about? What the Vilna Gain is talking about is the yearning that a Jew has for Hanhagas Hayichud. The yearning that the Jew has that what the tzaddik is fighting for, which is the Hanhagas Hayichud, the Jew says that even though I've had my own personal failures, but I yearn for the Hanhagas Hayichud. I yearn for that, for that revelation. I haven't done everything that I can do, but I yearn for it. That's significant. That's significant. That God knows that the Jew is yearning for it, even though he's not there in terms of his own behavior, is also a significant statement that brings out Hanhaga Sayyichud. That's the first thing that the Vilna Gaon says. But then the Vilna Gaon says another thing, and which is really the reason why I brought the Vilna Gaon here. The Vilna Gaon says like this. He says, we know that the Neshama, before it came into this world, and I'm, I'm elaborating on the Vilna Gaon, but this is, the Vilna Gaon says everything in three words. So I'm just trying to elaborate on it a little bit. The Vilna Gaon says, we know 
that the neshama, before it comes into this world, is in a blessed state. The soul of man, before it comes into this world, is, is in a blessed state. So does the soul of man, coming into this world, gain anything from its experience here? Seemingly not. It, when it comes into this world, it's constrained. And it's up to man to choose to bring out the energies of the soul. Maybe yes, maybe not. In most cases, it's not brought out completely. And seemingly, the soul loses from its experience here. With the exception of the rare cases where the soul really develops its total potential, it seems that it's, it, the, the neshama is getting a raw deal. And that the soul of man, the neshama of man, is, wa, was much happier before it came into this world. The Zohar says that it's not so. The Zohar says that as happy as the soul of man is before it comes into this world, it is lacking in one godly quality that it can only get from this world. And I call it a godly quality. What is it? The fact that what it is was totally accomplished through receiving, not through developing. Through receiving but not through developing. All of the greatness that the Nisham has before it comes into this world was given to it. It was a spiritual welfare handout. And the Zayir calls this Nahama de Kisufa, shamed bread. Now, the nature of the Nisham being so close to the essence of God, and as close as it is, but it hurts on this point. Because God is a totally independent being. God doesn't have to look to anything to supply it for what it is. And the neshama, as, ra- as dramatically close as it is to the essence of God, is dramatically different. Because everything that it is, it is through receiving, not through doing, like God. So therefore, the Zohar says that the neshama before it comes into this world is suffers from kisufa. It suffers from embarrassment. And when it comes into this world, even if it doesn't bring out all of the potential that it had before, but the potential that it does bring out is much different than what it had before it came into this world. Why? Because it's not with kisufa. It's not with embarrassment. It was... Man created it as God creates. God is a creator, the soul is a creator, but not before it gets here. It's a creator when it gets here and it does with its potentials what it was meant to do with its potentials, then it becomes a creator. And now the Neshama has, has, receives an elevation because it's Mizdama Lakono. It becomes similar to its creator in its creative ability of not receiving a spiritual welfare handout, but in actually creating spirituality as God is a creator. So that is accomplished by the Neshama. So that's the accomplishment of the Neshama that it loses this embarrassment. So the Vilna Gaon says the following thing, and if it wouldn't be the Vilna Gaon, I would never dare say it. But the Vilna Gaon says the following thing. What does the Alat Sadikim talk about? The Alat Sadikim talks about the low nevosh. We shouldn't be embarrassed. So the Vilna Gaon says the following thing. What, what, where does the discussion about embarrassment come in? So the Vilna Gaon says, you know, you know that the Nasham has got to do something here to get rid of its embarrassment. So we're turning to God 
and we're saying to God, God, even though we're not like those five groups of people, but we root for them and we support them, and we believe in everything that they, they're, they're loyal to in spite of all of the trouble that they have in being accepted. And because of that, we, don't, we will not be embarrassed. What's the connection? So the Vilna Gaon says like this, if the Jew holds on and supports these five groups of people in spite of everything that's happening in the world that seems to negate their importance, seems to trample upon their message, seems to put them on the lowest category of respect in the world. And I can turn to God and I can say that no matter how many tragedies and crises Jewish history has heaped upon the people that make the proclamations that these five people make, these five groups of people make, I still support them. And I still believe that there's a rhyme and reason for every difficult thing that happens in our history that Sadiq is trampled on, the Plata Sofreim is ridiculed, the Zikne Amchabes Yisrael is told to take his books and go fly a kite someplace. But where am I? I'm with them. And even though they're not given the respect that's due them and the cover that's due them, I'm behind them. And the fact that they're not appreciated and they suffer in many different ways doesn't for a moment rattle my faith that I belong in their camp. So the Vilna Gaon says, for that bitachin itself, that all of the bad things that happen to these five groups of people will not rattle my loyalty to them. And I believe deep down that there's a reason for it. In the end, they will, they will come out the righteous ones and the correct ones. The Vilna Gaon says that that's enough of an accomplishment for the neshama that it won't go back embarrassed. That's what the Vilna Gaon says. The Vilna Gaon says a soul when it comes into this world is embarrassed. It's got to accomplish something here so that when it leaves this world it's not embarrassed. The Vilna Gaon says the fact that a Jew can live with the Bitachin that no matter how dark history is to these five glorious groups of people I will support them and I will live with the belief that deep down there's a rhyme and reason that will lead to some ultimate good at the end. That Bitachin that the darkness of history has a direction towards a tikkun gomor, that, uh, that abiding faith and not letting go of knowing that service will lead, that all of the tragedies of history will lead to an ultimate good, is enough of a spiritual accomplishment, the Vilna Gaon says, that the Jew can say three times a day, I know that when my neshama leaves this world, I won't have an eternal shame. I won't have an eternal embarrassment that I didn't accomplish in this world. What do we see from this Vilna Gain? Now the Vilna Gain is not saying don't do anything and just believe in the other groups of people. That's not what the Vilna Gain is saying. But the, what Vilna Gain is saying is that there's a tremendous amount of spiritual work and accomplishment that is, that is accomplished by what? By loyalty and by trusting that as, as seemingly directionless as history is, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is working towards a tikkun. See, if we, if, we have, um, if we have a global spiritual picture of what's going on over here, let me try to express it. What we're saying really in the Alat Sadikim, what we're saying in this entire paragraph that we learned in Rav Moshe Chaim you know what we're saying? 
we are saying one thing that the realms of the positive the realms of Kedusha the realms that God wants to be the blessing of the world will sooner or later they will reveal themselves and everything that we believe seems to be running contrary to that ultimate goal that's only the way it appears to us because we don't have the vision to see but as long as we can work on a trust system and a loyalty system of knowing that it's all that I, I live with an abiding faith that the positive uh, connections and goals that God has for his world he's getting them done I don't see how I've got a lot of questions and I can't understand a lot of things but I believe that God has a commitment to his world and that everything that he's doing even though I don't understand it is an expression of that commitment that is a spiritual advancement that the Vilna Goyen says that when the Neshama leaves this world we don't even realize how much it's grown out of the embarrassment of being a receiver and coming into the, the category of a spiritual creator. That's what the Vilna Goyen is saying. And it's of something which is very significant to keep in mind because we often think that the loyalty and the trust and all of the other things, in spite of everything that's happening, those are the elements of perseverance and survival. But what's Avodas Hashem? Avodas Hashem is what we do. Now, it's definitely true that Avodas Hashem, that the service of God is what we do. But to think that the loyalty and the trust and everything else is just the characteristics that we need to survive, but that there isn't anything essentially in terms of that being a part of our Avodah Hashem, that's what the Vilna Gaon is saying. It's not like that. The Vilna Gaon is saying, you know, a person says, I'm not doing a mitzvah right this moment. So according to the Vilna Gaon, you tap the fellow on his shoulder and you're saying, it's true you're not doing a mitzvah this moment. But are you rooting for the right side? Are you believing in the right side? Are you saying that in spite of all of the difficulty that you see in front of you, you have an abiding faith that the tzaddik and the chassid and his proclamations are going to come out in the end? That's something that's a chayvah salvavis. That's something that's in the heart. That's, that's a connection that's going on from moment to moment. You're in Eivet Hashem every moment with that kind of a view of the world. That kind of a view and an attitude towards God's commitment of the wor- to the world is a spiritual accomplishment and a bonding with God that makes you a neshama that's below nevosh, that won't leave this world in embarrassment of having not accomplished. And that's something which is uh, important to realize. Okay, let's just go a little bit further. One more paragraph to finish this up. So it's definitely true that God held back himself in terms of the order of his perfection in, in creating what he created. And he created them deficient and not complete. And he put them into a conduct that shows a lot of the concealment of God. And from this comes the entertaining in man's mind to do that which is good or bad. 
And there definitely is the accessibility and the possibility for man to do that which is wrong and to flaw himself, hurt himself and punish himself. And even though this is true about the first conduct, he at the same time looks to ensure and to guarantee the correction of this entire situation, that in the future will definitely come. And God is doing things every single day to guarantee this happening. And God moves together with the good and bad together in order to create this kind of a situation. Now, essentially we're, we're finished with this whole discussion. What I'd like to do is I'd like to take out two, three minutes just to touch upon something which he hinted to in this paragraph and he's going to spend about a page on later. I'd like to just do it in summary so that we can close this particular chapter and next time well, I'm not sure if it'll be next time or the one afterwards, but let me just touch on one, uh, one more thing. Let me touch on one thing which he develops over here which is an important thing. One of the differences between the first conduct and the second conduct, what did we say? In the first conduct, God, by his own will, limits the extent of what he gives to us because he says, I'll only give to the extent that you do the things which deserve. In the second conduct, where God says, I'm going to make it happen if you deserve, if you don't deserve, that's midas tuvo. Okay? Now, if you compare these conducts to each other, which one is an example of tzimtzum? And which one would be an example of the lack of tzimtzum? The word tzimtzum, just for those of you that are not familiar, tzimtzum is holding back, and lack of tzimtzum is not holding back. Which one would be a manifestation of tzimtzum, and which one would be a manifestation of the lack of tzimtzum? The first one is a manifestation of what? Of tzimtzum, of hagbola, of boundary, of constrainment. And the second one is the lack of it. Okay? Now... The one point which Rav Moshe Chaim Litzata makes is the following. Even the second conduct of God, where God gives us even without deserving, which relative to the first conduct it is the absence of tzimtzum, it also has tzimtzum in it. Why? Because were God to create his world or man exactly to the essence of what God is, we wouldn't even be born with any kind of deficiency. So in other words, the first, the second conduct of God where he gives us of his good, irrespective of our deserving, relative to the first is a lack of symptom. Relative to the first conduct where God says, I'm not going to give you anything unless you deserve it, relative to the first it's a lack of symptom. But one has to recognize that the second conduct also has a concept of tzimtzum. In other words, for a person to make the blanket statement that the second conduct is God's operating with his world completely in the order of his perfection. That's not true. Because if the second conduct would be a world 
that is operating completely to the order of God's perfection, we wouldn't even be created with deficiencies. So the second, in other words, so there is symptom even in the second conduct. We're, we are created with deficiencies. But what's the difference between the first and the second? In the first one, God says, you won't get out of your levels of deficiency unless you do something about it. In the second conduct, God says, even the levels of deficiency that I want you to have, but I will intervene to complement the degree of deficiency that you can. In other words, that which you would have been able to complete on your own, if you don't do it on your own, I will, I will intervene and make it happen for you. But beyond that, but beyond that, in other words, that which man could not have done in his best, in the best of times, which God says that even if you don't do it, I'll intervene and make it happen. Beyond all of that, this world is still mitzumsam. It's still constrained in relationship to what God's essence is. Man is not God. And man, even if he completes himself, isn't God. He's still mitzumsam. So this concept, in other words, what I'm saying now is that Rav Moshe Chaim is trying to qualify something that he's saying. He said that in the second conduct we have the total order of God's perfection. So Lazaro backs off and says, one second, it's relative to the first, it's, it's total, a total order of God's perfect, perfection. But even the most perfect state of the second conduct is all, also has symptom to it, which is a, is a rather obvious kind of a thing. But this is the point that Rav Moshe Chaim Lissata makes. Now, along this line, let me just finish up one more thing here. Along this line, when we have, for instance, the phrase, which we've most probably all heard of, and said that it's easy to say but hard to believe in, the phrase, Kol Everything that God does, He does for our good. Okay? Which we don't have difficulty saying when we win lottery tickets. But we do have difficulty saying when things go wrong for us. Right? So Rav Moshe Chaim Litzata says that after the discussion that we are having here today about the two conducts of God, we have a better appreciation of this statement. When it says, Kol Mada Ovid Latav Ovid, that everything that God does is for our good, we know that that is a statement of belief in the conduct of Yichud. In other words, that something is a punishment or a reward is usually very obvious. But how we can see that even within the context of rewards and punishment, everything is getting us closer to the Tikkun HaGamur is very difficult to see. That's what the statement of Komanda of Adrachman Latav. That even though the obvious conduct seems to say good for good, bad for bad, Komanda of Adrachman Latav means that even within that system of good for good and bad for bad, really everything is going Latikon, everything is going for good. That's what the statement means. It's really a proclamation and a belief that there is a Hanogas HaYichud that is constantly going on, even though I feel that what's happening to me at this moment is nothing more than the first conduct of reward and punishment. In other words, I'm saying that even though what I feel and what I sense and what is obvious to me is the first conduct, but I believe that underneath everything that's happening, 
there is an interlace of the second conduct that's moving me one step closer, Latav. So, what is it? Let me try to put it into perspective because it's a very deep thing. What it's saying is like this a person can do something that's wrong, and a person can get something will happen to the person that's negative. And the person can even be spiritual enough to say to himself that, you know something, I have a deep down feeling that this bad thing that happened to me is in response to the wrong thing that I did. So now, how do we usually feel about that? Look, what can I do? I did something wrong. So I believe in reward and punishment, so something happened that's in response to it. So what's the entire value of what's happened? It's a bad thing, but I have nobody else to blame except myself. So what's my attitude to the Scharva Onish? That that's the consequence of the system of, of, of free will. I did something wrong, so something bad's going to happen to me. So how do I look at it? I say it's a bad thing. But I deserve the bad thing because I did something bad. And that's what reward and punishment is all about. Everything that God does is for good says that even though the, the particular thing that I might be living through, I recognize to be an obvious reward punishment, cause and effect kind of a thing, I recognize the fact that even within God's responses to me of reward and punishment, I'm coming closer. By virtue of that itself, I'm coming closer to Tikkun HaGomer. So, that the first conduct has within it part of the second conduct. Because the experience of reward and punishment itself is something that will advance the tikkun. It will advance it. So, yes, the major thrust of the reward and punishment is because God reacts to what I do. God responds to what I do. But with beyond the, the major thrust of reward and punishment being God's response to what I do, is in the reward and punishment itself, there's the consideration of tikkun agamur. Otherwise, God could say, you did something wrong. So... I'll forget about you. Finished. But Tikkun Agamur doesn't allow that. Tikkun Agamur says, I will, uh, Tikkun Agamur says that even if I might not want to respond to you measure for measure and just not bother with you anymore, Tikkun Agamur says that I'm not going to let go of you. And I'll use the Scharvainish itself to make sure that through that experience you get closer. So that's why there can be many situations of suffering that a person, go, a person goes through and when he becomes more spiritually oriented he can actually get, create a lot of guilt around it and say to himself well it happened because of this and that and the whole thing wouldn't have happened if I wouldn't have done the wrong thing so I just went through an experience that really was unnecessary because if I wouldn't have done the wrong thing, this wouldn't have happened. So in essence, it had to happen because I did it, but the whole experience is unnecessary. So we don't attribute any significance to it beyond the fact that I made God do it to me. What Rav Meshachayim Lassat is saying now in this advanced concept is that it's not true. That even an experience of Schar V'Einish has underneath it the preparation of man for the Tikkun. Man becomes tempered. Man becomes uh, in tune to that kind of an experience of tikkun. You know, God's where God intervenes and God makes things happen, that also has to react with a human being. 
Hanagasayikhud isn't just some kind of a unilateral reaction on God's part where God says, Hello, I'm here, you can't deny me anymore, and I'm going to give you a list of everybody who I am. I mean, even if that's what Hanagasayikhud would be, but if we wouldn't have been going through a process that prepares us for that Hanagasayikhud, it wouldn't work. What's the process that helps us relate to Hanhaga Sayyichud? The first Hanhaga. The first Hanhaga itself, the experiences that we go through, even the most difficult experiences that we go through, always keep us in contact with God. So that when Hanhaga Sayyichud does happen, I feel it. I'm a candidate, I'm a vessel that can absorb the Hanhaga Sayyichud. I mean, it's, it's, it's not simple. But let me try to give you an example of this. Para went through ten plagues, and then he saw God. When he finally saw God on the Yamsuf, by the splitting of the Yamsuf, that was Hanhagas Hayichud. He didn't do anything to deserve it. But you might believe that Para was able to absorb the revelation of God on the Yamsuf because he went through ten plagues. Because he went through ten plagues when God finally came with the Hanhagas Hayichud, which was undeserved, Para was able to absorb it because of his experiences. This is also true of us. Every experience that we have that we would just mark right off as, I got it because I did something wrong, is also a preparation for the eventual manifestation of Yichud as well. So beyond it being, yes, it's true, if I wouldn't have done the wrong thing, this wouldn't have happened. But then I would have been ready for the yichud because I would have had a positive thing that I was protecting all along. But in the absence of protecting that positive thing and doing something wrong and then getting retribution for it, the retribution is not only a retribution for the negative thing, but it makes me ready for the hanhagas ha-yichud. Okay. So when we talk about a lot of suffering... And all of these things, but it's all, but underneath it all, it's a hanhagasayichud, and you look at me baffled, and you say, okay, I'll believe the Vilna Gain, because the Vilna Gain says that my soul will, won't be embarrassed if it only believes this. I'm trying to give you a gateway into understanding it. The gateway into understanding it is because the suffering itself is a preparation to be able to absorb the hanhagasayichud. The fact that we go through those things, will give us... That doesn't mean that we're deserving of the revelation when it comes, but we're able to deal with it and absorb it when it happens. And this is true of a lot of things in life, where you can point to people that go through a lot of suffering, and then all of a sudden they get much, much deeper connections to God. So you would be tempted, a person would be tempted just to make, feel better about himself to say, uh, the suffering came because God wanted to, to, to me to, be, to bring me closer, but it's not because I did anything wrong. Now we can back off from that and we can say to ourselves, no, maybe the suffering came because there was something that wasn't right and wasn't in order and I have to be purified. But that itself is nothing to be embarrassed of because going through that experience itself prepares me for the yichud as well. So, in other words, the value of a retribution is not just because it's a retribution, but the value of a retribution is because it inherently prepares me for yichud at the same time, to be able to appreciate the oneness. Okay, I, I hope I made myself clear, but uh, that's, that's the, the deeper twist 
that Rav Moshe Chaim Lissata puts into almost making these two conducts. He's almost saying that even though the laws of the conducts are different, but in a certain way, one actually bring, leads into the other. One actually feeds the other. The Hanhagas Chavah actually leads in and feeds into the, to the development of a significant Hanhagas Hayichud. Yes. 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 Now, I don't know. Your sheets ran out, didn't, did they not? Okay. What I just told you now, we're not going to learn it inside next week, but I will Xerox that sheet. But the discussion that we just had now in the last 10-15 minutes is really on... The, I'll, I'll sh- next week, I'll just show you where it is in the Hebrew and in the English. And when you read it inside, you'll, you'll see... You'll see it inside, okay, based upon this. You don't have it in front of you, otherwise I would show it to you inside. Okay. Um, okay. I'm not sure if we'll start the Trias Mason next week or the week afterwards. I'll have to make a decision about something here. But uh, we'll stop here. I don't know of anything unless uh, some... I, I didn't hear that there's any change. I mean, it's clear still here? It's all rumor. It's all rumor. Okay, she, the, she's a spokesman for, spokesman for clear. Spokeswoman for clear.